Light feet be up. Light feet be up. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. That's, that's what hurt me. A little bit of genius. And then you got to mess up a man that was um, totally in control of the ball. I mean, he could hit a golf ball as pure and as straight and as clean as, uh, as anything I've ever seen. He woke up every day and knew he was going to hit it well. He just knew he was going to hit it well. Every day. It's frightening the house straight he hits it. Never offline. This swing can't hit pretty. It's like Iron Byron. Ball doesn't move. There isn't many people on this planet that could pick up a golf club and start hitting balls and have us stop and walk over and watch him hit them. Golf is happiness. It's intoxication wealth hangover. It's stimulation wealth of pills. Price is high, death rewards are richer. Some say it's a boy's pastime, the other builds men. It cleanses the mind, rejuvenates the body. There's these things and many more for those of us who know and love it. Golf is truly happiness. Watch this. and tell people there are thousands of stories about Mo and some of them are even true. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the book that I wrote um, about my friendship with him over the years and uh, all of the all the sort of work I did around him and about him, uh, I tried to include stories only that I had seen personally that I had, uh, so I could obviously vouch for them or that I knew people who I trusted and who uh, spoke about encounters or anecdotes that they had about him, which I, you know, I could verify from um, just trusting those people. But there are many, many stories I wouldn't include just because um, if, if everybody had seen Mo, for example, walk up to a par four uh, and ask what kind of hole this is, and somebody said a driver wedge, and he took out a wedge and hit that first, and then a driver on the green. I mean. He may have done that, but, you know, based on all of the people who say they saw him, did it, they saw him do it thousands of times and thousands of courses. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like everybody who saw Gene Sarazen's Arwood shot that he holds out <laughs> to win the Masters. You know, if they were all there, there'd be more people going to Masters now than, than there are now. So, you yeah. know, I, I was lucky to get to know him since I was a kid, and therefore I could write the book based, you know, almost entirely on my own experiences. When did you first meet him, Lorne? I was about oh, thirteen years been... old, and I grew up uh, really? a couple of um, a couple of you know within a mile of a, uh, a practice facility and a golf course called De Havilland, which um, was near an old sort of air base, not too far from where I live right now. It's you know I could walk there; it's a mile and a half away. It's no longer an air base, but anyway, there was this uh, there was a two tiered driving range. There was the nine hole golf course a really you know pretty good golf course it was about 3600 yards tips back then uh and there was a gigantic practice putting green and the best part for me as a kid was there was an 18 hole night lit par three course uh and as wow. i say it was within a mile of where i grew up and i would go there with my dad and my uncle play in the evenings and that's where i'd first sum up i walked in one evening on a kind of a hot July night, and there he was hitting golf balls in, in the heat, you know, dressed in a 
turtleneck and pants that were only up, you know, down to his ankles, not really well fitted, and just sweating from head to toe and whacking one ball out there, dead straight, one after another, after another, after another. People gathering around him, and I asked my dad, "Who was that?" And he told me that's Walt Orman, uh, and uh, that was the beginning of it. When I was about thirteen years old, I made sure that I um, followed him as much as I could, and then when I took up the writing. Of course, it just continued, wrote about him, film about him for CBC here in Canada, and um, ended up doing this book many years later. So, you know, we had a very good friendship, that's for sure, over the years. And he was a tremendous subject for a writer. Still the most interesting person I've met in golf. You know, and I've met them all, obviously, at least in my generation. Wow. Yeah, that, that, is, a, <clears throat> that is a kind of ringing endorsement, isn't it? I mean... What was your first interaction with him as as the you know as that being that young kind of teenager lawn and going up and watching him hit golf balls? Were you just sort of watching kind of quietly by? Was he quite interactive to sort of get you involved? When did you first sort of have a have a conversation and 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 how did that sort of play out? Well, I think my first sort of interaction with him, or it wouldn't even be a conversation, but interaction was he. One of the things he did at the Havilland at this golf center was he would. Um, sort of work behind uh, behind the counter and he mm. would dispense a pail you know of, uh, of golf balls to you you know you'd pay whatever it was a dollar or 50 cents i don't know way back then in the 60s and uh he would sell you the golf balls that was part of his job there and uh you know it really you really couldn't call it a job his job was really just to hit golf balls and entertain people there <laughs> but that's what he did that would be my first you might say hey well can i have some golf balls here how much are they or my dad would pay who knows yeah. <laughs> and then i would just sit and be mesmerized and watch him hit golf balls and because of his uh, mannerisms and the way he dressed and uh no matter how hot it was i mean toronto can get hot in, in july it could have been 90 degrees at night and he'd be dressed in the same clothes and sweating head, head to toe <laughs> in that turtleneck and just hitting golf balls one after the other after the other at, and the driving greens you might remember that they or know that the, the way golf balls came to you they they sort of came out of some kind of a, a chute and mm. they came right down onto a rubber tee so you didn't even have to bend down to put a ball on a tee you just say so he would that was perfect for mo because he was so fast he would just stand there you know one after another after another after another off there uh, off into the darkened sky and then into the night sky. He loved hitting golf balls, and people would gather around him, and, and a certain amount of them would laugh at him because he did it so differently. You know, with mm. his his style. Maybe you've tried to swing like Mo. I played mm. recently with the guy in Florida who tried to swing like Mo, and he was a pro. He's a pro. Really? He's a teacher pro down there, and uh, I'm going to be Mo today. He said, and I've done that myself. I introduced Mo yeah. at clinic. Played, tried to play nine holes swinging like him. But people, some people who you know who do, who work sympathetic, you might say, or compassionate, would laugh at him. And my dad, I remember, told me um, my dad had played some pro football in Canada in the Canadian Football League, and uh, he was really into sports. And uh, he was a very understanding and compassionate guy. My father was. And, uh, he told me very when I was very young that Mo was probably the most unusual golfer out there at the time that he ran into problems on the PGA Tour, or what was, you know, the precursor to the PGA Tour, and people did laugh at him, and that it would be much better to try to understand him than to laugh at him. So, uh, in a lot of ways, I think what my dad said to me about Mo became the cornerstone of how I approached the game as a writer. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, I was a decent player. I could play amateur tournaments and junior tournaments. I knew how difficult the game was. Uh, and that's why I guess when I started to write about it from two points of view, I would never say that this person choked on a golf shot because, I, you know, I might say they they didn't get a very good shot given the circumstances or they couldn't, you know, whatever. It was, the pressure got to the who knows. But it also came from low because I would not um, diminish that person because of his or her inability to hit the shot at the right time. And, and Mo mm. was a guy who required a lot of understanding and compassion. And I think that's probably why, you know, he trusted me as uh, as I went along and became a writer. Uh, and we spent all that time together over the many, many years until mm. he died in uh, 2004. So it really did become a cornerstone of how I approached writing about golf. Was he, was he was Mo quite an easy person to befriend so much? You know, you guys were close, you knew each other for, you know, many decades. So what, was he a difficult person to get to know and strike up a relationship with, or was he sort of a bit of a, a fairly open book? How would you describe him? Excuse me, he could be difficult for sure. I mean, if you looked at him the wrong way, you know, you, you might say hello to him and, he might not even respond. Just depends, really. For me, I, I was lucky because, as I say, I met him when I was 13 years old, and he was always very, very friendly with kids. He loved to introduce kids to the game. He'd go over to that gigantic putting green and to have them and just be hitting putts and helping kids with their putts. He'd give give away golf clubs and give away golf balls. He was a very, very generous person. Um, so I think because I got to know him when I was so young, and he was still relatively young, I was 30s, I guess, um, uh, I didn't have much of a problem in terms of establishing a connection with him. But I saw over the years that people did have difficulty, especially if they, you know, kind of made a comment about him that he might have overheard that he didn't like, he didn't appreciate. And, or there were times when he would just brush somebody off, if, even if they were being nice to him, because he was, he was, you know, he, he redefined the word introvert. He was very, very mm. introvert. Um, and, you know, as I often say, he was... Uh, a very, very private person playing a game, playing a public game. And that's why it was difficult for him at the higher levels of the game. He won everything in Canada except the Canadian Open. But uh, he didn't feel really comfortable, um, you know, with real stars of the day, you might say. You know, Arnold Palmer, he came up at a time with Arnold Palmer, of course, and Palmer was just setting the golf world, you know, alight with his electricity and the way he played and his smile. And Mo just felt people, a lot of people just laughed at him and uh, uh, he didn't feel all that comfortable. So it's not surprising that he didn't do all that well in the United States uh, when he went down and played it on the tour. Uh, he just had a tough time of it. He couldn't really cope with the public demands of the game. Uh, but privately, I mean, if you could have made a living just hitting golf balls all your life and giving exhibitions like a musician can, let's say, who doesn't want to go and, uh, and and provide, do concerts, but just work in the recording studio. Like in the book, I write a lot about Glenn Gould, the Canadian pianist, who was, you know, very, very private, and he gave up concerts. And he played Carnegie Hall. He played everywhere. He was brilliant. Um, but he gave up the concert hall for the recording studio. You mm. know, you can't do that in golf, you know. Mm. Maybe some players can just go around getting exhibitions, um, but, you know, very few can. you got to go out there and play in tournaments, put yourself out there. And that was uh, that was difficult for Mo to do in front of so many people. He was, you know, he would always get to the tee at the last second. If he had a 9.42 tee time, 
and he'd show up at 9.41 and 38 seconds or something mm-hmm. because he didn't want to be out there standing on the tee. I mean, I can't even turn when he was in the same group, and, and you could see that. He was the, um, you know, he, he took time to get to his ball, and then he hit it quickly. Uh, he never looked at a, at a putt, he just stood up and hit the putt, you know, didn't read it. It's, uh, if he was forced to do aim point or something like that, I think he'd have a breakdown and he'd have to leave the how much of that do you think was a, a sort of product of his of his upbringing, Law? I mean, I guess a, a fair bit has been written about Mo's character, and I understand he was he was um, you know, one of was it five children? Um, and there's a story of him maybe going tobogganing with one of his older brothers, I think, or perhaps it was a friend of his, and having a, a, an accident after which his 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 mum apparently said that he kind of wasn't the same child really had a sort of a, a kind of particular attention span to get quite obsessed about about certain things which you kind of n- n- you know narrated there in a sense he, he with golf at least he took it up later on from from what i understand and and just got quite sort of obsessive and um you know immersed in the in the skill perhaps you could just sort of tell us a, a little bit about yeah about that period I mean, of his life that tobogganing accident you referred to i mean that did happen it uh he was just coming down the side of a hill and there was a car coming around the corner and the car brushed him it didn't run him over or do anything like that but it did you know his it did sort of strike him at the side of a head the wheel yeah. did and uh, his mother you know always kind of regretted she didn't take him to the hospital because the damage didn't look sensitive or anything but his teacher at the time i think it was kindergarten um and and noticed that he started speaking quickly and double speaking that might be the origin of there so you know there might have been some kind of i talked to a a neurologist uh, about that when i was doing the book and there may have been some some kind of minimal brain damage that caused him to speak so quickly really uh and just fed into him the kind of, and that's why he was attracted to golf of course we often say that People who play golf can be loners, and it was at least he could do that on his own. He mm-hmm. was also an excellent baseball player. He could, you know, kind of hit the ball wherever he wanted to, a singles hit or not home runs. He didn't hit the baseball over the fence or anything, but he could control it and hit the, you know, pick his spots, that sort of a thing. So, and did it come, did his personality come, you know, from his whole life to some degree? Yes, because his, uh, you know, he didn't get a tremendous amount of support for his golf. I mean, his, family you know they were kind of a i guess you would say a lower middle class home they didn't lack for anything but they certainly weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination and uh, when his father in particular heard that he was caddying at a local club a private golf club uh, his father didn't understand that world to know that world and so they would well eventually got a few golf clubs and started hitting balls uh and he told me that they would hide it just hide his golf clubs under the front porch at the house so the, you know there wasn't a lot of support there eventually it was there but not when he was a kid and that probably it all just sort of fed into the way that he approached the game and the way he handled life um i think the fact that he was so private and so different actually led directly into how he swung the golf club, right if you think about it i mean he would not have played so quickly um if he didn't want to get out of the public eye so mm-hmm. when he's playing so quickly it means he didn't he played golf more as a what we all try to do as a reaction mm-hmm. he saw his target and he swung he all didn't the stand there and take three, three practice swings and try to mm-hmm. visible he just walked up i played with him once and i tell this uh, one of the times i played with him i told the story in the book where 
we stand up on a, a short par four at the golf club that I play at now, actually, Maple Downs in Toronto. And they were very good to him there way back when. And he, uh, it was a, it was kind of a blind tee shot. And he said, where do I hit it? Where do I hit it? Couldn't see a landing area. And I said to him, just hit it over that ridge. And the fairway begins over the ridge. I said, aim at that cloud. And he said, Ooh, can't aim at the cloud. Can't aim at the cloud. Clouds move. Clouds move. So he was a bit lost there on the tee. And mm-hmm. didn't know where to hit it really. So he was not a fan of blind, blind, blind golf shots. Really, he needed a target to react to, and then boom, he was so fast. And if you diverted your eyes to look at somebody in the crowd or wherever, you could miss his shot. I mean, he was the fastest player I've ever seen. Did he? Did he ever talk much, Lorne, about how he learned to swing the club? Because obviously, he swung the club in a completely unique way. He approached the game, I sense, as a bit of a, you know, you might say, as a bit of a loner. You know, he was sort of. You know, an introvert. He was self-taught. He didn't have any infrastructure around him in terms of how he was learning to swing the club. Certainly, from what I gather, at a pretty young age. Did he ever talk to you about these were the people that he looked up to, or that did he look at certain positions, or did he read anything, or did he just purely go on instinct and feedback from the face and where the ball flew? Did he? I mean, how did he end up with the swing that he had, which was obviously incredibly effective, but pretty unique, right. I think. Well, there was a man in uh, Kitchener, Ontario, where he grew up, a very good teaching professional uh, pro at the club, where he grew up with the public, uh, the public golf course, Rockway. And a man's name was Lloyd Tucker, and he taught some of the top uh, amateur golfers of the time, became pros. Well, Deary Cowan, of course, won the U.S. Amateur twice, uh, and the Canadian Amateur, he won it as well. Lloyd was Pierre's teacher. He taught another excellent young pro named Jerry Castlering, and he helped most. I mean, he did help Mo a little bit, but the way in which he helped him was to do a little work on his grip and then not to change his swing at all. For whatever reason, Mo uh, very, very quickly put the club well behind the ball because he knew that everybody talks about taking the club back low and slow and extending your arc, developing a wider arc. And he's something in him, although I'm not even sure that he can put it into words uh, later on. And yes, but. He just felt, well, if you want to take the club back a little slow, why don't I start at 14, 16 inches or whatever <laughs> behind the ball already? It's already that far back, right? If you want to have balance in your golf swing, you want to be solid on your feet, why not have a very wide stance? If you want to have a big arc, maybe hit the ball a little further. And remember, he was hitting with using Persimmon and Balada in those days. Well, you know, take a wide stance. And then you're solid on your... And George Neeson, of course, advocated a wider stance as well. And uh, um you know, I think Mo had a lot of respect for, for George, for George Nathan, and also one of his best friends uh, and confidants was a guy named Nick Westlock, who won four Canadian amateurs, ended up playing in the Masters four times. Back in those days, Augusta, the Masters gave Canadian amateur champions uh, uh, an exemption, which is why Mo played a couple of times. But uh, so, you know, Mo did have his people that followed, and he knew a lot more about the golf swing than he would let on. You know, he would look at pictures and study them, but, um, you know, he didn't really use campers or anything like that in those days. He just felt, well, you know, he, he sort of thought it all out in an instinctive, artistic, very ingenious way. And that's why his, he never changed, really, his whole life. He just didn't. You know, he wanted, uh, he wanted to take his hands out of the swing as much as possible. So he had these big rubber grips made by a rubber tire company in Detroit, uh, and they were made kind of specially for him and his golf clubs were very very heavy you know back in the days of swing weight they were you know whatever they were d1 or something like that or e1 
and uh, I've held them. And uh, he would show up at the Canadian Open on Tuesday of Canadian Open week. And you've heard this story where he would uh, kind of skip over the rope, come out there in his street shoes, and the players would start exhorting him to hit golf balls. You know, Nick Price, Paul Azinger, Fred Couples, and eventually, oh, no, I'm just throwing street shoes, can't hit balls, don't ever help up, don't. Finally, he would grab a club, let's say Paul Azinger's, and oh, how can you hit this? How can you hit this? The shaft is like a matchstick. It's like a matchstick. I want an oak tree. I want an oak tree. You know, he wanted a heavy club, something that he really could really feel and, and control. And, you know, but eventually he'd start hitting it fine and just great shoes. And um, the Canadian Open, that was one of the, the highlights of the week for a lot of players. See, Mo, you would skip over that little rope there and uh, get out in the range and start hitting golf balls. Yeah, it's amazing just watching his um, his swing now. I mean, we're fortunate that there's quite a, a few clips of it out on youtube and i actually i think i was watching a, a clinic that he'd given just in preparation for this this conversation look with you lorna uh, he started giving clinics didn't he later on in his career i think he, there was an arrangement with titleists and i'm not sure how much of what he sort of talks about in those clinics is, is is what he was thinking at the time or how much he figured out for himself but um yeah there's some brilliant snippets there i mean there's so many quotes that i guess we'll come on to um in the course of this discussion, but but one of which that he talks about when he's swinging the, the clubs, like vertical drop and horizontal tug and, you know, it's a feeling of greatness, you know, rashes right. of bacon rather than pork chops when he's talking about <laughs> taking nice shallow divots. And he yeah. strikes me as someone who did, you know, think about, clearly he loved hitting a lot of golf balls in quick succession. Um, but he, yeah, he strikes me as someone who was quite a thinker about the golf swing as well. Maybe in a similar way to Hogan. I obviously didn't write about it, and there's not there's not as much documentary evidence as there is as there is with Ben Hogan's thoughts on the golf swing. But Mo certainly had had some kind of beliefs as to how to deliver the club effectively and what he was really feeling. Oh, he did. He was so enamored of striking the golf ball purely, of hitting it in the mm. middle of the face. I mean, you know, you looked at 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 the faces of some clubs from top players and. You know, with the size of a dime or a quarter, yeah. or, you know, a penny, or, and that's how most was. Just wore out the center of the club face. But that vertical drop you're talking about, he would talk about that a lot if anybody asked, or he would show it to you. Know, it looks like the club is so far behind him, and the way it then drops down and he's coming through. Um, you know, he talked about having some of the things he said, like, you want to golf swooping without any rotation. Well, there was rotation there because his body yeah. is turning through the ball, but it's not what he felt. He just felt mm-hmm. it was the golf club and it was his hands. They were connected and the golf ball stuck to that face of that club. To him, in his mind, and the way he felt, um, he was sensitive to this. That the, the club went so far down the line, he felt the ball was just sticking on the face of the club. And he mm-hmm. loved that feeling, really. I mean, he, he did. And uh, a lot of that was achieved by that vertical drop that you talk about. Pretty hard to do. I mean, I don't know if anybody can do that unless you hit it in our balls a day. But, um, you know, I mean, Brad Hughes, Bradley Hughes, who teaches, we've talked, we talked about that before in my Newton podcast. Yeah. We talked about that, uh, what he calls the 430 position coming into impact. And Mo got into that 430 position. And that's why he could strike the ball. I mean, he just didn't miss shots. He really didn't. I, you know, until he got older. And then, I was playing with him once at a golf club, the golf club in Brantford, Ontario, which is kind of in the area that he grew up in nearby. And they were good to him there, and they let him play there. And he'd, um, he hit a ball. He, he drove a ball kind of onto an opposite fairway coming out the back nine. There were some young guys playing down on that fairway, and they laughed at him. He said, Mo, we thought you never hit a ball offline. And that, yeah. really, put, that really put him off. You know, he said, 
haven't played all winter. I can't miss a shot. You know? yeah. <laughs> and that sort of a thing. So, you know, you had to be careful with what you were His feelings could be hurt pretty quickly. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I guess that, I don't know if we're jumping into it a little bit early, but I, we, it's something we absolutely have to talk about in, in this conversation because the stories of, you mentioned Tiger saying that, that Mo Norman and Ben Hogan are the only two people he considers to have ever owned their swings. I mean, some of the, the anecdotal tales of, of Mo Norman's prowess as a, as, as a striker of a golf ball just seem <laughs> absolutely absurd. I mean, yeah. I, 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 and I think it would be remiss if we didn't, tuck into a few of them one one of which i heard i think it was when he was playing with maybe sam sneed or ben hogan some top professional golfers and they came to a hole um with a creek running across it and i think the other members of his group took out three woods or irons to lay up short of it he pulled out a driver and they said well, what are you doing that's going to go in the burn and he said i'm going to hit this over the bridge i mean i guess you must have heard <laughs> <laughs> iterations of that story um, in one form or another, you know, in your in your time researching and spending time with Mo Norman, can you can you speak to the sort of the the veracity of of that anecdote in particular? Well, that story I can't. I mean, I've heard it. it's yeah. one of those stories that thousands of people tell it because they've heard it. It didn't happen. I can see it happening. Sure. Yeah. I mean, locally, but I can tell you just two examples from the many that I saw that I can verify, vouch for because I saw them. I was there. One, um, I grew up. Um, uh, you know, when I was a, a good young player, a junior player and a young amateur, there was a tournament at the club I grew up at in Toronto uh, called Uplands, but the tournament was called the Eager Beaver. It was essentially the amateur tournament, an 18-hole tournament on a weekend that started out the Ontario amateur tournament season. And Mo would always come there and put on a little clinic before. The first hole um, was a short par four, but they were hiding the wires down about 40, 50 yards down the fairway. And Mo would put on a clinic, and first of all, he would put on the clinic by elevation. He'd say, okay, what do you want? First floor, second floor, third floor, fourth floor. And he, he, he would take the club, call it a nine iron, hit it to that height. He'd hit it down, whoa, first floor, second floor, third floor. But the story that I found amazing, but I saw it, was with these hydro wires, there was a local rule that if you, it was kind of a two-iron wedge. There was a creek down there, and you had to lay up in front of it. Yeah. Um, and it, the, the local rule was if your tee shot hit the hydro wire, you could re-tee it, do it over. Well, Mo would say would try to hit the hydro wires intentionally. But you know how thin a hydro wire is. It's like a yeah. fingernail, yeah. right? And he'd hit, you know, let's say he had 10 balls, he'd hit that hydro wire two or three times. That's <laughs> intentionally. Sad. I'm not saying he hit it every time, which would be, you know, superhuman. So that's one story. Another one, Royal Oak. That is absolutely <laughs> insane, isn't it? It is insane. Another it reminds one, me when you're like young and you're like on the driving range trying to hit like telegraph pylons that we have here in the UK, like a few driving range, and you might do one, you know, yeah. in four or five hours. He's doing the wire intentionally. Yeah. couldn't believe it. It's mind-blowing. Another one was at the Royal Oak Club, as it was called, which was, of course, at the Canadian PGA in, in Florida, in central Florida. And Mo would, that's kind of near where he lived in the wintertime. He would drive down his Cadillac. Two things I always want, two things I always want, leather shoes on a Cadillac, leather shoes on a Cadillac. <laughs> alligator shoes, I'm sorry, alligator shoes. That's what he wanted. It wouldn't be too, you know, <laughs> too popular right now, really. <laughs> um, but he wanted alligator shoes in the Cadillac. Anyway, at Royal Oak, I was up there one day, and uh, about 220 yards down the fairway, he was hitting balls. 220 yards or so down the fairway 
there were two women who were crossing the fairway. I don't know why they were crossing the fairway because there were no houses on either side, but you know, there were houses in the community further away, and maybe they were taking a shortcut. So they were crossing the fairway, they were maybe five yards apart. And Mo was just hitting balls. He didn't even notice them. He barely picked up his head, hit one shot after another. But at some point, I said, Mo, hang on. You know, wait till those women cross. You might hit them. And he just looked at me. He said, oh, no, I won't hit them. I won't hit them. And something in his brain was able to calculate the speed at which those women were walking, the distance they were for each other, and how far he could hit his forward, whether it would fly to 210 yards or one bounce, what would happen, right? Anyway, he said, oh, I won't hit him, I won't hit him. Anyway, he hit this forward, and it just went right between them. So <laughs> as they were walking, and they, they were moving, they weren't standing still. So he was like, you know, Lionel Messi trying to make a pass or something <laughs> oh you know, to, to, to somebody coming up on the, on the side and anticipating where that player would be. And that was what Mo was doing with these women. Figured where they would be. Something, the calculations he was making in his brain, you know, I mean, we're—it's godlike. It's godlike control. Yeah. But ball, I saw him do it. And I saw, and so those are stories I can vouch for, and and many more like that. Really, you know, I mean, it's uh, it was astonishing. That's why he was—I call him the most interesting person I've met in golf. I, I mean, referring back to um, the, the previous guest of the or previous subject matter, I guess uh, you know your conversation with Sam a few weeks ago, uh, George Nudson. I did hear a story that George Nudson and Mo Norman would go out and when they played together, they would have a friendly wager or a bet on how many flags each of them were going to hit when they went and played nine holes. Um, which I think I might mention that to you a few years ago, Sam. We'd say, I'd just say j- jokingly to you, let's should we have a bet <laughs> in the spirit of Mo Norman and George Nudson how many flags we're going to hit? When <laughs> in reality, it'd be more realistic if we bet on how many greens we might be able to find <laughs> in nine yeah. holes. But um, is that? I mean, is there any is there any truth to that that tale as well? I guess they spent quite a lot of time together and played a fair bit of golf, and obviously, you know, both great characters of their own right. But do you ever hear of that that tale? Yeah, I heard those stories. I mean, I, I was never in the, in the same group with George and with Mo, so I didn't see them do that, but I could see them doing it, yeah, because they were so into just hitting the ball accurately and hitting it spot on, and um, I would doubt that they played for money, really. Mo yeah. wasn't the guy who played for money, and neither was George. They would just be taking the pure pleasure of yeah. this shot, hitting it accurately and one-upping one another that way, but yeah, I could see that happening. I mean, Mo just loved to take the mickey out of people and hit it closer than they did, really. Whoever they were, Nick Westlove, George Newson didn't matter i mean he, he he enjoyed hitting accurate golf shots and you know he had him 800 times a day his hands were like sandpaper when he shook your hand or his way of greeting really? you might be his way of greeting you might be to pinch your cheek and you felt like your cheek was going to tear apart because he didn't know the strength of his own grip wow incredible incredible stuff and obviously i mean you mentioned earlier there bruce you know that quote from tiger which i think that's on the cover of your book that you did isn't it law and the moan moan mooch is right i mean it's an unbelievable endorsement um to just talk to us about his professional playing career and 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 how some of that went because as you said he was he was hugely successful in canada didn't really want to do a huge amount of travel this would have been in the days as well where you know PGA circuit maybe wasn't as big or maybe, I don't know if it's unfair to say it wasn't as big a draw perhaps then and it might have been actually just quite a nice choice to stay and play got a bit more golf in Canada. I don't know if there's any truth in that. But then, well, Mo played, Mo, played his, Mo played his golf in Canada because 
you know, I mean, he's number one, it was expensive to go to the U.S. Number two, he, you know, he wasn't that interested. But then, you know, he did play the Winter Circuit, as they called it back then, and played some tournaments in, in Florida and on the PGA Tour. Played or he, if you look at old Golf World magazines, you mm. can see his name in the standings there. Um, and and a lot of people think that Mo finished fourth. That was his highest finish in in, in a tournament in New Orleans Open. But I found the issue of that magazine um, with the scores, and um, Mo didn't finish fourth. He finished down the line somewhere. So you know he struggled a little bit down there, more with the public side of the game mm. and with the tour players kind of laughing at him, uh, and he wasn't comfortable. But you know in Canada, he won everything across Canada. The provincial opens pretty much won most of them. He won. Canadian PGA Championships. He won, I think, seven or eight the Canadian Senior PGA Championships in a row. Um, so in Canada, he was he was comfortable, and as he got older, he would give clinics and and um, stand up in front of people and talk. A lot of times, if you heard those talks, it would be the same talk. It was something that he'd memorized, and it was kind of almost by rote, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, um, you know, like he was at comfortable but he did get more at ease you know in, in crowds and with people mm. but the golf course was where he was certainly the most comfortable and where he wanted to be but um you know he was quite happy just sticking around he didn't have big ambitions to go down to the u.s and play the pga tour nothing like that his personality just wouldn't allow him to do that to be comfortable you know yeah. and, and eventually of course that's why he left the tour because you know he was a bit of an entertainer you know he would get you know, he he would have a tee that was eight inches high and hit it off that tee, where he hit balls off Coke bottles. You know, um, and uh, you know, kind of the more golf was pretty conservative game back then. Mm-hmm. I think if what we were playing now on the tour, if the same, if Norman of nineteen whatever sixty had come out and be thirty five years old now, he'd be a lot more accepted because in society in general we accept differences mm-hmm. more more easily. And Mo would have been more accepted and welcomed, and I think, and was, this is great, people would say, we've got a very interesting guy here right now. He would have won the PIP, the Player Impact Program. Yeah, he would have won it. Yeah. Yeah. would love him, wouldn't they? I mean, you'd love watching the guy, wouldn't you? Because, you know, for one reason, it'd just be such a breath of fresh air to see someone pull a stick and commit to the shot within seconds of getting to the ball. I'd love to see a lot more players do that, Lon. Um, Putting him and Patrick it, Canley yeah. in a group might be quite... That would be great watching, wouldn't it? I think Mo would blow his top with Well, Canley, you know, the Ontario Golf Association... While we're playing so fast, the Ontario Golf Association here asked him to zigzag across the fairway but he wouldn't get to his boss so fast. <laughs> I mean, you, know. um, you, you mentioned there, Lord, earlier that, you know, he, he, he didn't sort of fit in that well with the PGA Tour and, and I guess his introvert, introverted nature wasn't a great fit. And perhaps also the the kind of the playful entertainer in him as well didn't, you know, jarred with the, with the conservative attitudes in the game that were prevailing during the 60s. Uh, there's a story of him going to, I think it's New Orleans in particular, there's a tournament there where he had a bit of a dressing down from some of his fellow players or, or officials on the PGA Tour um, after one of the rounds there. I think they sort of said, you, you, you know, all the the, the, the the strange outfits and the, the fast play and the strange demeanour that he needed to take himself more seriously because, you know, he was giving off a, ba- a bad image for the game as a whole. Is there much truth to that? Was there one moment in particular that in your in your mind was the reason why he, he he moved back to canada and didn't really want to engage with the pga tour too much or was it more of just a you know there was a, it was just a general way of thinking that it can't be attributed to to one particular event well there were a few players back then 
kind of laughed at him, made him feel uncomfortable. And one day, uh, uh, he just sort of left the tour and he yeah. showed up at a friend's place in Florida. And the guy said, you know, his buddy said, what are you doing here? He said, I don't want to play the PGA Tour anymore. I just, I'm not, I don't like it there. I don't want to be there. And, and, you know, it was kind of a cumulative series of yeah. events that happened. And then that was pretty much the end of the PGA Tour for him. You got to remember, this is a guy, he, you know, when he got into Augusta, when he, after winning the Canadian Amateur, he went down there and he didn't bring a caddy. He, or in th- that, those days, they used master's caddies. But he didn't have a. He went out there to have a practice round, and he was carrying his own bat at Augusta. Mm-hmm. And Clifford Roberts got wind of that and came out in a in a cart and said to him, "Oh, you know, what are you doing? Why are you out here without a caddy?" Oh, I haven't got the money. I haven't got the money for a caddy. And Clifford Roberts said, oh, "You know, we'll take care of that. We'll figure something out. But you can't be out here without a caddy." Um, you know, and uh, yeah. you know, there are stories from sleeping in and sand traps and sleeping at the side of the road and those are all true that's the, it's amazing really that he did as well as he did it, mm. giving the the sort of um you might say psychological handicaps or limitations that he had mm. playing a game like golf you know it would have been better if he were a chess player and he could just sit in a room and play chess or snooker mm. or something like that but to play in front of thousands of people and uh, but you know he was a great playing companion really Mm. Uh, at the Canadian Open one year, I think it was might have been 1963. There's a time that Doug Ford won. Mo was in contention coming down the last few holes, and you know he ended up just three putting so frequently. But at one point, Doug Ford, who as I say went on to win the tournament, did a tee shot off into into the woods, and the crowd who were supporting Mo, the Canadians, they they applauded Doug Ford's shot into the trees, and Mo gave them a dressing down. So really? no, you don't do that. That's not golf. You don't applaud a bad shot. Let him go hit his golf mm-hmm. ball and leave him alone. Mm-hmm. You know, which you know he was a gentleman, really. And, yeah. Uh, um, but you know, if he was hurt, you know, you may never hear from him again uh, in terms of uh, playing that tournament or talking to you. I know that happened frequently. So a friend of mine. There's a kind of a hamburger joint in Toronto that Mo would go to a lot to uh, to have a burger and. Uh, my friend spoke to Bo, you know, fairly often. He had a good relationship with him. He was a good golfer too. I need to see him there with the restaurant. It was called the Golden Star. I think it's still there. And uh, Mo would show up there, and my friend Nidil would show up there. But um, they would talk, and then a couple of weeks later, it was when they were there. It was like Mo had never met him. Just looked at really? him like blankly, like as if he never met him. So I don't know what was going on there, but that's just the way he could be. But mm. you know you. That was okay. He was so unusual. You know, we overuse the word unique, but he was unique. I guess everybody is, but he was unique in in ways that you you might have trouble grasping. It's a really interesting perspective, that is, though, Lorne, because I think a lot lot of people, perhaps when they read about Mo Norman and and hear these stories of of how frighteningly good he was at golf how accurate he could be just how how much complete control he had over his golf ball it's a shame i think a lot of people would see it as a shame that he didn't achieve more in the game that he didn't play the pj tour he could have won majors and they think it is sort of a, a, a shame that he didn't make more of his talent but actually the way the way you've framed it there it, it's it's the other way around and it's like he made he made so much of it and achieved so much in spite of um the the, the challenges that he had in his life and, and 
and that he didn't have a temperament or necessarily the you know the the mindset to to cope with so many variables that are intrinsic in the in the nature of professional golf there's so many um distractions in this game i guess to play at a high level and the fact that he was able to win so much in canada you know just stands on its own two two feet as a as a wonderful achievement and yeah, we should be making more of his achievements rather than thinking, oh, it's a shame he didn't achieve more. Well, my take on that has always been that, um, you know, people would often say to me, as you've just said, that, you know, it's too bad Mobile couldn't handle other sides mm-hmm. of the game because he could have won everything. Lee Tobrino said something like that. He said, you know, if, if Mo Norman could have, you know, kind of handled other uh, other aspects of the game, he would have won everything in the game, really. You know, Tobrino yeah. said, I remember our parking lot at Glen Abbey here, during the Canadian Open. But my contention is that if Mo were a different person, psychologically, he would have been a different golfer. Because yeah. he wouldn't have had the... I think they, as I said before, they'd both played into one another. So if if somehow, let's say he had gone and had a sports psychologist or whatever, and tried to change his personality and encourage him or help him under, cope with some of the psychological demands of the game or the social demands, as you say so accurately, so rightly... I think he would have been a different golfer than I think, yeah. you know, if people were prone to listening to everybody about his golf swing, he would have been a different golfer. If we, if he were around today with this uh, golf swing and with people telling so much information out there, trap man, this, that, you know, instruction that, um, you know, launch angles, spin rate, smash factors, so on and so forth. Um, and if he were trying to achieve certain other, certain positions in his golf swing, I think he would have failed. I really yeah. think, you know, I think the fact is that he was um, just a one-off who came into a game that allowed one-offs, really. And, you know, there aren't necessarily a lot, and it's an individual game, so he could play it. But uh, could he have won a lot more if he were different? I'm not sure he could. I, I put that sort of notion in the same class as people would often say to me, you know, if Mo would have taken time putting and studied some putts and lined them up and so on and read them, he would have made more putts. More, more. I say, no, no, no. Like, you haven't, Mo made as many putts by not looking at the line and not thinking about it <laughs> and just trusting what he saw as he walked up to the ball as he missed, maybe by not looking at the line. You know, if mm. he didn't, if he missed the four footer, well, of course he missed it. He didn't look at it from the other side of the hole or whatever. Right. Well, I'd say, well, how about those 20 footers you made last four holes or whatever, right? Where he just walked up and hit it just as fast. Yeah. Really. You know, so I don't buy that. You can't have one without the other, let's say. That sort of trigger happy, sort of obsessive nature was almost a sort of a yeah. blessing. And I think a curse, he has to really. be accepted. Yeah. As, he has to be accepted yeah. as just a one that's the off full package. That's the full package. That's mm. right. You know, just as, you know, you can look at all walks of life, musicians, artists, actors, and, and you know, he was a genius in his own way. You know, would it be, would he have won more tournaments if he weren't the Mo Norman we know? Well, I don't really think so. I think he mm. won his, he won what he could given who he was. I'm curious. How much of this do you think was nature versus nurture, Lorne? How much of it was... Was he born with some sort of just God-given talent for ball striking? Or did I, think he, was, I think it was the whole package. Did his obsessive yeah. nature get him there, you know? Like, just repeating there was, it. Yeah, just, there's something about his nature, and somehow he just, you know, felt good with the golf club in his hand. It gave him something 
to do to be himself, really. He could give him some confidence as opposed to maybe feeling a little bit different from others because of the double speaking and other things like that, you know. Um, so golf was the perfect game, the perfect vehicle for him to express himself, you know. Um, you know, golf is, you know, as I've written before, golf is a game that gives loners freedom of expression. And, you know, Mo could express himself through golf. He, he couldn't, you know, he liked other sports like baseball and was good at it, as I said. But I don't know that he would have been so good, you know, let's say he was the same level baseball player or hockey player as he was um, golfer. I'm not sure he could have succeeded that well in a team format. That would have been tough for him. So it was, just, you know, wonderful that golf was available as a means of expression for him. But, um, you know, I think nurture did play a little bit to do with it in the sense that he wasn't nurtured. His golf swing was his golf game wasn't really nurtured. He found a way for him to be um, a young boy and to play sports on his own, but without really a lot of encouragement, you might say. Uh, and so, was he nurtured? I mean, you could say that nurtured the individual in him because he just said, "I've unconsciously or subconsciously, if I'm going to get along." In his life, I really do have to be an individual. I'm not saying he phrases it like that at six years old or something like that, but some instinct in him kept them moving in that direction and led him to golf. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the stories of him just hitting balls for hours and upon hours. I mean, is it a silly question to ask? Did he did he have much in his life away from golf? Did you get the impression that there was? That there was much else that that filled his time, and yeah, consciously didn't really have much in the way of any any long-standing relationships or romantic interests. And I guess the stories of him uh, living in a in a motel and having the same change of clothes or like his whole wardrobe on the back seat of his his car. I mean, um, yeah, I, was there much you know no, outside of golf in he, those he, lives? He was it was the few friends he trusted, you know, um, who helped looked after him, and uh, wherever he lived, the motel room or small apartment or sometimes his car he would drive around southern ontario and just stop on the side of the road and listen to motivational tapes his car was full of motivational tapes tapes. yeah he would do that a lot and i drove with him i mean you know one time i was in calgary with him and uh he wanted to show me some of the places a place where he went on the canadian amateur the golf course wanted to show me a golf club there that he was very comfortable at because the members treated him nice and we just drove around Mm. and we did that in ontario southern ontario sometimes too that we, I can picture in my mind right now stopping on the side of a road, a dirt road in the country, and he was driving down his big Cadillac, got out of his car, took out some motivational tapes, showed them to me on top of his car. He had some, he had some golf. He did have some golf, um, a book by Paul Berthali, who was a teacher in North Carolina. Uh, uh, the Berthali Method, he wrote, very interesting guy. Mo always had that book and claimed it was, you know, one of his Bibles, and he would stop by when he drove north to Canada, Florida in the winter and stop by and see Paul Berthali, Schloss, another guy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he had his routines. He was a man of routine. He drove down off Florida the same route all the way. He drove slowly because he didn't want to, well, you know, didn't want to get a ticket, although he got a ticket once for driving too slowly uh, on, <laughs> you know, the interstate. <laughs> so he just had his own way and, uh, you know, you couldn't disturb that way. And if you did it, well, you know, you were sort of a cast adrift. <laughs> You might say, but, uh, you know, but he was a warm-hearted guy, you know, as he got older and there were social situations that he was inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. Same year, Jack Nicholas was inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. And, um, he, uh, he, he, you know, he was in a crowded room, began dressed like, as, as I recall, in like a yellow sports jacket, 
in this uh, cock in this for this cocktail hour, and he wasn't much of a drinker. He would drink cokes and then diet cokes to nothing else. I mean, the sugar and all the cokes. He, that's why his teeth were so like snaggle teeth. They were mm-hmm. so sharp at the bottom. But at this particular cocktail party, I mean, it was crowded as they say. It was a hot day there, and um, uh, at some point, I heard my my wife kind of yelp. You might say something like this. Like that. What was that? I looked at her, and Mo Norman had come up to her um, behind her uh, with a cold glass, ice cold glass of Coke in his hand, and said, Oh, I heard your Lord's wife. I heard your Lord's wife. Just want to say hello. Just want to say hello. And his way of saying hello was to put that ice cold <laughs> glass up the back of her neck. <laughs> and that's why she reacted like it's <laughs> just superb. So funny. He, did, he really was. Have, I get, yeah. yeah. I get the sense he was a bit of a prankster or like he, he, he wouldn't mind. Oh, yeah. I know. Poke in front yeah, of people. You mentioned he's like, he's quite a sensitive soul, but this clinic that I referred to earlier that I've been watching on YouTube, but I'd urge anyone listening to the podcast, go and check it out because it's full of, of some comedy gold, probably more than anything else. He's, I think he's hitting balls in like green trousers and like this crazy multicolored Czech shirt and he's just hitting shots and he talks about the vertical drop and the technical stuff but he also talks about after he hits each shot he's like oh Toro's the driven snow you know most people <laughs> are never going to feel that ever in their life you know? <laughs> it's a shame that no one ever has this feeling the fe- it's the feeling of greatness the feeling, yeah but I mean well, you know, he, he would at, at clinics uh, you know he would stand there and, have, and then inevitably he'd say open fear open fear that's how people say see when they hit the golf well open fear open fear not me, not me. I see happiness, happiness. The ball yeah. fits the more Norman way. The ball fits the more Norman way. Fairways are wide. Fairways are wide. The ball is small. The ball is small. <laughs> it's superb, though. And, it, it, and the thing is, when you watch those clinics, that's the really strange thing is, obviously, you talk about him being a shy and introverted person, but then he comes across as really garrulous. Just on the, you touched on the, the Hall of Fame stuff there, Lorne. Um the other thing, of course, was the the sponsorship deal that he picked up towards the end of his career as well. I get the sense that he hit the sort of, when he got towards the end of his playing career, all of a sudden there was just like this sudden appreciation for him as a character, his ability and what he could do. And it was just maybe a late fuse. And it, the, he all of a sudden got a lot of recognition quite late late on with the, was it Wally Uline with the sponsorship contract with the, with the Kushner and... Um, there was another deal as well, wasn't there? It was a natural motion or something like that. There was, there was, all of a sudden, there was quite a few things that came at Mo a little bit later. Is that fair to say? Which yeah, must there have were felt I mean, a bit Wally strange Uline. when he was a bit of an outcast for for a it few was, years. But while the U line, of Titleist always appreciated that Mo played Titleist. You know, it's not like he was on staff mm. or anything. And then been that um, you know some time at the PGA Merchandise Show there, and he started. Uh, Titleist started paying Mo five thousand dollars a month for the rest of his life, just because he was Mo Norman and he supported the Titleist, and he felt it was the right thing to do. I remember for the purpose of my book, I sat down with Wally, arranged a meeting with him, and they gave, let us have some small room at Augusta in the clubhouse so we talked. Um, and uh, yeah, he t- but anyway, yeah, he, he did. And then there was natural golf, Jack and all that was that lasted a while as well. And the other thing that happened, the Canadian PGA organized clinics for Mo across the country and he would travel and they paid him something like eight hundred dollars a clinic and he would so he got more comfortable doing that. He did. He got more comfortable, as I say, in kind of a rote, mechanized way. Um, but it uh it it worked out for him. And really you know, the last ten years of his life, you know, he felt surrounded by a lot of a lot of respect and a lot of love, I think. Hmm. 
Conscious of the, the Tiger quote that we mentioned earlier on, and it's on the, the, the cover of your book there, Lorne, um, where do you think Tiger's appreciation for, for Mo Norman came from? Because I guess he, you know, Tiger, Tiger was growing up and playing golf sort of in America and maybe not uh, as aware of, of, of Mo Norman as a as a brilliant talent and how much, how many uh, Canadian titles that he'd won. You haven't spoken with Tiger. Do you kind of get a sense of where his, his admiration and respect for Mo Norman, because to put literally Mo Norman and Ben Hogan in a class of their own, when it comes to having control of the golf ball is, is, is obviously quite a, quite an accolade, particularly coming from, you know, arguably the greatest golfer of, of all time in, in Tiger. Yeah, well, you know, Tiger studied the golf swing, as you know, very young age. He was really into mm. it. He was, you know, you describe yourself as a swing nerd. Well, so <laughs> recovering. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know, but he, he knew who could hit the golf ball. He knew who could control yeah. the golf ball, and that's what he wanted to do. And he would actually study film of 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 um, of Mo really. On yeah. he would he, he would you know, he told me to go to a, a find film Mo just so he could study him and look at him. Really? So he became very aware of him and then watched at the Canadian Open. Dick Zoko, who was one Canadian player, won on the PGA Tour a couple of times. He saw that Mo was on the putting green. Mo wasn't playing. He was just hanging out the putting green and Tiger happened to be on the green at the same time. And he introduced them to one another. Tiger came over, shook Mo's hand and there's a, there's a photo of that. Somebody took a photo. So yeah, I mean, you know, Tiger was well aware of Mo just as I'm sure he's aware of there's probably people out there that we are having even heard of Tiger, you know, who, who really? can't handle the social side of the game. But Tiger, man, I can that guy swing that golf club, and he's interested in that. And um, so that's so he was well aware of Mo when he was very young, quite young. Wow, I've got um, I suppose uh, you know, it's, you know, for people to find out a little bit more about Mo Norman, which is really. You know, I suppose these podcasts, these player profiles, of which you've done our first two, Lorne, and what a what a hot start it is to have you helping us bring two brilliant characters to life. Um, where can people go to find a little bit more out about Mo? I suspect your book would be a good starting place, but um, my book would be a good place to start. Tim O'Connor's book, "The Feeling of Greatness," which is a more conventional biography, Mo, you know, would be yeah. good. Um, there's a film we did that people can never get a hold of it. This is from a series on CBC called Life and Times, which was an hour-long documentary about Mo, where he gave us really good access. There's also some shorter clips. There's a show called The Fifth Estate, um, and uh, which was filmed. Uh, it's about a ten-minute piece about Mo. If you look for that, Torino was quoted in there, um, and and so that's a nice little insight into him. So, you know, the usable conventional ways, I mean, you, you can dig up articles if you want to go really down the rabbit hole, mm. um, get onto your local library site, find newspapers, and just see where Mo won his tournaments. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of articles out there about Mo over the years, really. Um, so, you know, there's, it's not like there's a lot of video of tournaments or anything that he played in back then, although you can find some of the Canadian Open here and there. I would look, look for those. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And and are there any other sort of, you know, I suppose parting wisdom, Lorne, or are any other sort of really fond memories that stick in your mind from Mo and things and experiences or anything, anything else that really sort of just brings brings him to life a little bit more for us? Just the way that people who knew him, who knew him really well, including, you know, his brother, who I got to know a little bit when I was doing the book, Nick Westlock, who they cared, they had a deep caring and affection for Mo. And people should know that, that Mo was held in high esteem and mm -hmm. was, you know, really respected because he made a life for himself that was difficult, really. 
that could have been difficult, let's say, um, because he was so different. But he managed to do it. And I think that should give people hope, really. That yeah. If you're a little bit different, if you're a little bit unusual, there's something to be said. You know, his most favorite song, as you may well know, was Frank Sinatra's My Way, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a beacon of light for all of us, really, to go our own way, you know, to do it in a quiet way. Mo was a quiet guy, really. And he was very sensitive. And just to, as my dad told me back then when I was 13 years old, to try and step, step if you can in other people's shoes, have some compassion. We need a little bit of compassion in this crazy world we're living in here. And I think, you know, whether it's athletics or, or, or whatever, I think it always helps to open yourself up to others. And I think, and, and try to understand it from their point of view. And, you know, that, Mo, I think, if there's one lesson from him, it's that. And I remember in his weeding days, you know, in his last few years, he was getting sick, you know, and he was getting weak and he was losing weight. He had, you know, kind of uh, congested heart failure. Um, but he would always just be the same. He got very quiet and very soft. He'd meet Nick Westlaw at a local club. They'd have some breakfast. And he would just say, you know, I had a good life. I had a good life. Everybody's got to go. Everybody's got to go sometime. He knew what was coming. And, uh, you know, he was he was able to accept that his fate, you might say. And um, he lived with a lot of, what would you say, there was a certain elegance to the way he lived, really. He focused really? on one thing, and that's all he did, really. And, you know, I, would, I was very lucky to get to know him. And, uh, yeah, really, uh, he was a tremendous, um, you know, I played with him, and he encouraged me, laughed at me. Sometimes some of the shots I hit, but you know, he was tremendous companion on the golf course, and uh, and he wanted to see you enjoyed as much as he did. He and George Bidis, they were like two of a kind, one of a piece, you might say. They just wanted the people to enjoy their golf, even if it was just one shot around. Beautiful lawn, amazing. I don't. I think that's a yeah. unless Bruce. I think that's a wonderful. No. Um, way to close it i mean it, it just brilliantly you know brought to life there lauren honestly thank you so much for um for doing that with us i mean it's just been it's fascinating hearing so much more from someone who knows him firsthand as well which you know i think is that's the key thing with this stuff you know it's those mm. first-hand stories really so no, right. a huge thank you i mean it's just brilliant well thank yeah, you thank, guys thanks. for being thank you guys for being open-minded enough to you know george new sounds Mo Norman to invite me to talk to you guys. It was very enjoyable. Thanks so much for your time, Lord. Watch this.